You are listening to the Her Money Matters podcast, episode 61. Welcome to the Her Money Matters podcast, the podcast to help you take control of your finances. Join your host, motivational money coach, Jen Hemphill, as she shares with you practical, simple money insights and real life stories by women like you. Let's get to it. Welcome, welcome to yet another episode. I am pumped to have you here. It is a new month. It is the month of August, and I am just astounded how quickly it has arrived. This month, we're going to just focus on pure interviews where we're going to talk about money, but of course, right, in terms of special needs children, divorce, the passing of a spouse, and the single woman. Now, don't forget to connect with other like-minded women in our free private Facebook community over at jenhemphill.com forward slash community. I am so very pleased and so grateful for the caliber of women in there. They are supportive. They're becoming more and more confident in talking about money, but also they're becoming more confident with managing their money matters. So for me to sit on the other side and witness that is just very, very rewarding. Today, we're going to talk to a mother of two beautiful girls diagnosed with talk autism. And we're going to talk about what she calls special needs finance. In today's episode, we're going to learn about the letter she wrote her father and why that shaped her views on money for years to come. We're also going to learn about the one thing she wished she knew right away for taking care of her daughters. And we're also going to learn the one thing to be aware of with Medicaid and some things to come with the program Able, which she is going to explain about. So let me share with you a little bit about Jen Terrell. Jen Terrell is a financial feminist who focuses on helping women working outside of the traditional nine to five to set up systems and work on habits to make their money work for them towards their goals. The corporate structure was not built with women in mind and between glass ceilings, wage gaps, and no guaranteed paid maternal leave, it was has never been particularly kind. She sees entrepreneurship as a new women's movement, one in which we can find new ways to balance breadwinning with caregiving and not be punished for things like being capable of creating a life. So let's go ahead and meet Jen right now. Welcome Jen Terrell to the Her Money Matters podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Jen. I'm excited to be here too. Well, I have to tell you, I definitely reached out to you for a specific purpose because one, well, yes, you're wonderful and you're big hearted and I love everything that you share um, on the interwebs, but also your experience with just the cards that you've been dealt with in life. So I'm excited to talk about that. But uh, let's go ahead and get started with uh, just some other normal questions. You ready to get started? I'm ready. Perfect. So Jen, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, grew up around money, your personal money story. Well, my childhood involved a number of divorces and remarriages of my parents. So to be honest, while I wasn't fully aware of the financial situations and ramifications of all of that, I was aware of tension and stress around it all. So... I feel like my early experience of money was kind of uncomfortable, to be honest. Um, you know, my parents were divorced when I was three. 
And then both of my parents remarried and there were some subsequent divorces. So there was step families and, and half siblings at different times. And I've never shared this story before, but one story that I think illustrates kind of how awkward it was for me as a kid and how sometimes manipulative adults can be with kids is, um, I remember a time when my mother's second husband, who was my stepfather at the time, talked to me about the fact that my father wasn't paying child support, which obviously I knew nothing about. I didn't know the settlement that my parents had or what it involved. But he explained to me how he paid child support for his kids because he loved them and that my father wasn't paying child support. And he was basically telling me that my father didn't love me because he didn't pay child support. And he suggested that I write my father a letter asking him to pay child support. And I did. I was probably seven at the time. So, and I have... I'm not even sure what my father thought of it. I think he thought that it wasn't really any of my business at that age because they did have a settlement that they worked out. It was an amicable divorce and everything. But um, but now as an adult looking at that, the idea of asking a seven-year-old to write my spouse's ex-spouse to ask them to put money into our household, you know, that was sort of the, the awkward situations that um, – happened in my childhood that made me feel very confused and very uncomfortable with money. So I feel like growing up, I had my impulse was to distance myself from it and not really want to be concerned about it. And in college, I um, was really influenced by the riot girl movement and the punk movement. I was in a bunch of bands. And Starting there, you know, we always DIY'd everything. We hand screened our T-shirts. We pressed our own records. We sold them as cheaply as we possibly could. Like the goal was always to get things to people at the lowest possible price. It was, you know, the the thought was always being fair to the other people. So I, I feel like the influence that my childhood had on me kind of made me a chronic undercharger. <laughs> and it really wasn't until I had my own kids that I started seeing money more as a tool and something that could be powerful and something that I really needed to figure out more about for my own kids. Uh, you know, what was I teaching my daughters? What are they learning from me? Mm-hmm. And also because my kids do have special needs, they're going to need a lot more care for a lot longer in life than most kids do. Um, you know, I, I, my, my end of life planning doesn't stop at the end of my life. It stops at the end of my daughter's life now. So mm-hmm. it, that kind of really moved the goalposts for me Absolutely. and made me look at money very, very differently than I did early in life. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So with you had that influence of your step, well, not the influence, but the the experience that you had with your stepdad and that um, made it awkward with money. And then once you had children, that's when your your views, your outlooks on money changed. Yeah, it really did. Because before that, I think I always thought of it as something that caused problems, especially in relationships and families. Um, you know, I saw it as not the goal. Like the goal was not to make money. Success did not mean money necessarily. You know, I always okay. tried to have these sort of very, I had a lot of very personal ethical views about money that weren't very positive for accumulating money and making okay. wealth. Gotcha. So I feel like I spent, you know, at least half of my life that way. And it wasn't until I was a young adult, well, not a young adult, I waited quite a while to have children. I didn't have my daughter till I was 31. So yeah, it took me a long time to really realize that, yes, I do want security for my family. I do want safety. I do want 
to provide for my kids in the best way possible. And I don't want them to undersell themselves. I don't want them to disempower themselves by thinking that money is anything other than a tool, that it's something negative, you know? Right, right. And I like that, that you say that money is a tool. It's a tool to get you to what you need. I love Mm -hmm. that. Now, tell us a little bit more, and this is why I'm excited to talk to you, because personal finance is just so personal. We, yes, there's so many, there's so much, so much advice out there, but they don't know your particular situation, the cards that you've been dealt. So you are raising two beautiful daughters that have special needs. So how do you prepare financially? You also mentioned it's about longer than, you know, it's about how long they live. Uh, in thinking in terms of that, um, preparing financially. So tell us how you prepare financially. Okay. Well, my oldest daughter was diagnosed in 2010, which was before Obamacare went into effect. And back then, insurance companies could still have autism exclusions. And our insurance company had an autism exclusion in place, which is not something that you look for when you buy insurance. Right. (laughs) I didn't have kids when we got that insurance. So, um, it completely blindsided me and caught me off guard. I was so confused by how you could just exclude a condition that is, you know, it was like next to bariatric surgery, things like that. And I was like, okay, I understand excluding some things that maybe are um, elective, you know, right. but, but how can you just say nothing related to autism yeah, that's is not elective. involved? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was really difficult realizing that. And at the time, I would never have thought our finances were in a place to withstand the kind of expenses that we we have. But um, my family helped in different ways. We sold assets. We waited until we were older to have kids was part of it, too. I mean, I can't help thinking, gosh, I got married at 25. If we had that happen at 25 when we weren't really set up, didn't have a home, didn't have much savings, it would have been really, really difficult because we did want her to have the gold standard ABA therapy, you know, the things that were proven to have the best results. Um, But all of that was really expensive, especially living in rural Arizona. We had to travel to Phoenix. We went to specialists. We sometimes flew specialists to us in some cases. At that time, we were living out on our ranch, which is about an hour outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. We eventually moved in once we realized both kids were going to need a lot of therapy ongoing and school services and everything. But, um, you know, and that was another expense as well, buying a house in town and moving into town. So it's hard to prepare for something like a special needs diagnosis for your child ahead of time because no one really expects it. But the better shape your finances are in to start with, the easier it is. And especially nowadays with Obamacare making it illegal for insurance companies to exclude pre-existing conditions and things like autism, you can get more of it covered. And depending on what state you live in, there are a lot of state services and school services for it as well. So one of the things that we learned was to really explore all the options and make the most of all these different services. And again, because we live somewhere that doesn't have an autism center, you know, if you live in a major metropolitan area, there are probably autism centers where you can go and get all the services you need. We didn't have that here. So we had to piece it all together and find different ways to pay for it. So we use um, here in Arizona, there's the Department of Developmental Disabilities, which is through the Department of Economic Security. Um, We get some funding for certain kind of services through that. And then through the school, we get funding for other services too. And we kind of created a wraparound program that where the kids get services both in home and in the community and at school that are all coordinated. And that took a lot of uh, 
a lot of time and setup and a lot of expense back when we first did it. I bet. And part of the reason I ended up writing a co-writing a book with our board certified behavior analyst was because it was so hard for us to do it. And then a lot of other families asked how we did it. And once we'd found the different funding sources, I was able to tell them more how to do it. But at first we were out of pocket for a lot of expenses. We've, we've really spent a lot of money on our kids services. And I wanted to help other families not spend as much, especially families who didn't have resources to draw on and assets to sell and, and family to help like we did. So that's that's what that book was. Of course, now that Obamacare has come through, it's a little outdated because you can get a lot more done through insurance than you could back when we started. Oh, okay. But um, but overall, I think that these days, a lot of us need to at least consider the fact that we may become caregivers in some way at some point in our lives. I know with my kids being young and my parents aging right now, um, a lot of my friends are in this a similar situation, even if they don't have special needs kids, they may have school-aged kids and parents in their 70s or 80s who may start needing more help. Um, So I think the more families can look at their overall plan and talk to their parents, um, and sometimes, you know, things can happen with your, your spouse can have an accident. There's so many ways in life that we can end up being a caregiver that it's worth thinking about. Like Very true. What would we do? Right. That is a good conversation to have because you're right. You just, life can change in a matter of seconds. Uh, It's just the reality is not talking negatively. It's just Mm -hmm. life. So that is a great, great thing to, that you brought up is just having that conversation just in case. Mm -hmm. And And talking to your parents about their, their wishes and what they want and what their financial reality is right now. Absolutely. when would they need help? Will they need help? What kind of help do they want? Do they want to stay in their own home? Would they want to move in? Like, you know, there are a lot of things to discuss. Absolutely. I agree. And what would you say? I know you mentioned there's been some because of the changes and uh, Obamacare and what it covers and whatnot. What would you say are like the no get no kidding go to resources that someone with a child like with autism, let's say, uh, should tap into? Well, there are some national ones. There's, you know, the Autism Society of America is a great one to find out about services. Also, Autism Speaks has a lot of things. They're a bit more focused on young kids and early intervention more than um, teens, adults, young adults. Um, So those are a couple of good places. But for actually getting services, it's really within your state. So if you... If you are concerned about your child's development, usually the first place to go is to your pediatrician and your pediatrician can then refer to the specialists in the state to get the um, assessments done that need to be done. There's usually some kind of early intervention program in every state. So you can get referred to the specialists who do the assessments there and then that kind of puts you on track to get into the system for the state Medicaid funded resources. Um here in Arizona, let's see, what was it called? It's been it's been quite a few years now. My kids are six and almost nine now. So early on, um, it wasn't a head start, but it was something similar to that. I'm trying to think of what the early intervention program was called. But within the pediatrician's offices, they have cards there too. Like, are you concerned about your child's development? Call, talk, you know, there's, there are websites you can look at. So within any state, I think you could search for that state and early intervention and find out what is available. I know here in Arizona, we've 
been able to get quite a bit of respite services as well as habilitation and actual therapy. So I thought that was the norm. And talking to people in other states, I realized it's not always as focused on respite. Here in Arizona, they really make a point of trying to keep people in the home, um, people with special needs in the home and in community-based services rather than going into residential services. So because of that, they give a lot of respite for caregivers, which is really nice. Um, but a lot of states do do it to some extent. It's just here I think we get a little bit more. Going to your state's website, you can look up disability services with your state's name, and uh, you should be able to find things there. That's that's probably the quickest way to find out what services are available. Um, but again, talking to a pediatrician or a doctor about getting referrals, that's that's really how you get into the system. Perfect. And what would you say is one thing that you knew that you wished you knew right away? Because I know you've mentioned flying uh, for, you know, flying, maybe doctors in for services, uh, having to travel because of the location you were at, you actually moved to a different location to be closer to your services. There's definitely a lot of money expenses going, you know, that you had to pay. So what would you say is one thing that you wished uh, you knew right away? And plus, you've helped people as well. People have come to you to, for you to help them figure these things out. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things I wish I knew earlier. One of them is with my oldest daughter, we didn't recognize what was going on for quite a while. We, it was our first child. We were living in a very secluded rural area. We really didn't have any other kids her age around to compare to. So I definitely wish that we'd known to get help sooner because, um, with regressive autism, she ended up regressing a significant amount. We lost almost all verbal language in the course of trying to figure out what was going on with her. And I was pregnant with our second child at the time. So definitely I wish we'd known to get help earlier with my younger daughter, because we'd gone through this with my older daughter first, the second we started seeing signs of aggressive autism, we put her straight into therapy and she's been an amazing success story for early intervention. She's doing fantastic. She's academically advanced. Um, her verbal communication is advanced for her age as well. She still struggles with certain things, I'm not going to say she's cured by any means, but I can really see that getting a kid in at 16 months old, which is when we started her ther therapy versus three years old when we started my oldest daughter's therapy makes a big difference. But of course, the kids are very different too. Tallulah has other medical issues. She has a white blood cell disorder. She has migraines. She's tube fed. She's had a lot of medical procedures that her little sister hasn't. Mm -hmm. So all of that affects it. Absolutely. So on the, the medical side, I wish we'd just known who to go to earlier to get her started faster. On the financial side, we were in such reactive mode. It was, you know, it felt like, it felt like we just had to throw everything we possibly could at her early intervention as quickly as possible. And at that point, when we first started and we were spending the most money, which was very early on, we really weren't thinking long-term. I think our hope was, you know, you read these stories of kids who get into early intervention and have the kind of results that my youngest has had where they are going to eventually be independent in school and hopefully be independent in life and work and, you know, have all the possibilities that everybody else has. I kind of didn't want to contemplate not having the best possible results with my oldest. And while she's done really well and she has come a long ways, she will probably need significant care for the rest of her life. So now looking at the way we've spent the money that we've spent on her therapy and everything, 
we've really had to refigure our long-term goals. Like I said before, um, you know, it's changed our retirement goals. Our retirement account goals are much larger to last a much longer time now. And I mean, I'm not going to say any of the money that we put into it early on was misspent because we didn't know what else to do at the time. Right, right. But I do think parents need to think about the long term, even when they get started with early intervention, because I mean, on the one hand, you want to get them the best possible care that you can and use the most effective therapies. When it's not easily available, you can spend a lot of money doing that, which we did. So now I kind of wish we might have tempered that just a little bit to put more towards the future. That's probably what I wish I had known. Gotcha. No, that's that's great thinking and, and great just advice right there. Would that be your best advice? So if someone, so if a parent were, came to you and just, you, of course, this just finding out, let's say, um, some news and they are emotionally, it takes an emotional toll, I can imagine, mm-hmm. and then financially figuring out how much money all this is going to cost. What would, what would, what is the best advice you can give to that parent? Well, I would say make sure you make full use of all resources possible that are available. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. To you through the state and through insurance and all of that first. Um, And yeah, really try to be tempered and measured with the ex- personal expenses because they may go on for a very long time. Um, I would also want to make sure they understand the Medicaid cap as well, the asset cap for their child, which is something I didn't learn about right away. We did eventually make a special needs trust for each of my kids. Are you aware of the Medicaid cap and why special needs trusts are so important? I am not. I am Okay, not. so... This is something I have a real personal problem with is Medicaid. For Medicaid benefits, there's a $2,000 asset cap. I was talking to Denise Doe on her show about this, and she said, oh, okay, so $2,000 a month. And I said, no, not $2,000 a, a month, $2,000. And she goes, oh, so $2,000 a year? And I said, no, $2,000. <laughs> you have to be incredibly asset poor to make take full advantage of the Medicaid Benefits, And as you have more assets and make money, you can lose your benefits quickly and significantly. Thank goodness President Obama in 2014 signed the ABLE Act, which is Achieve a Better Life, not outcome because it's E, Achieve a Better Life Experience. That's what it is, okay. ABLE. Because the issue was, you know, if you have a, a child without special needs and you want to start saving for their college, you can use a 529 plan, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have a child who isn't going to be able to go to college but has these special needs who really needs a lot of savings to go towards their future life, there was no way to do it without endangering their Medicaid benefits and with any kind of tax advantage. So what the ABLE Act is basically trying to establish a similar system to 529 plans for people with special needs. Okay. That's- and, and it has a $100,000 cap for that. So before that was signed, there really was no way was for your child to have assets that wouldn't endanger some of their Medicaid benefits, which for my daughter, she's tube fed. She has you know a number of procedures. Her medical expenses, were we to lose those benefits, would be very, very uh-huh. heavy for us to bear as a family because she has frequent 
frequent procedures. I mean, and I love the Medicaid system. When we went from when she did get into the the um, Medicaid rolls and we stopped getting all the bills from the hospitals for all of her procedures and tests and stuff, it was amazing. If she needed something and it was referred by a doctor, it happened and we didn't even get a bill. Whereas before yes. that, all of the testing, all the stuff, you know, every time she went to the hospital, I could get four bills for a single procedure. The anesthesiologist, the surgeon, the hospital room, you know, the recovery room would have a different bill. And it was really confusing, especially because all of that would be turned into your insurance. They'd send you the original bill and say, we put this through your insurance for your convenience. So I'd wait to hear from the insurance how much was covered. I mean, there was a point where some things got sent to collections just because I thought I was waiting for insurance to get back to us. And I'd gotten so many bills for the same procedure. I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't willing to pay. Yeah, it was just that I got confused because we'd had so many things. Right. So yeah, so it's it's difficult. And once it went to Medicaid, it was so simple. And I was like, I I love Medicaid. I love that when she needs something, it happens. And I don't get dozens of bills. I don't get any bill. Right, right. So basically, the Medicaid does have that $2,000 cap. But with ABLE, Mm-hmm. They it's a hundred thousand dollar cap that they can have in assets. Yes, Correct. so you have to set up the account, okay. and right now, like here in Arizona, it hasn't happened yet. You know, the bill got signed; oh. they're working on it. They aren't available yet in a lot of states, but they're working towards it. So prior to that, because that didn't happen until 2014, we set up special needs trusts because what happens if everyone else in our family were to predecease her? She would be the recipient of all of our worldly goods. Mm-hmm. So we had to set up a trust to intercept all of the assets. So it wouldn't go to her and she would lose her Medicaid eligibility because so it's possible throughout about. her life. It's so yeah. much to think about. Oh my gosh. So many details. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's a safety precaution. And I think families, even if they do do an ABLE account, still should do a special needs trust because if something catastrophic were to happen and you know all other members of the family passed away, that your house, you know, would, would disqualify your child for Medicaid eligibility, things like that. I mean, there are a few ways around it, but, um, but it's just, you know, it's a good thing to have to set up a special needs trust. Well, this is good stuff, Jen. I'm I'm glad uh, that you're mentioning all of that because it's definitely going to make a difference to someone. So let's talk about, um, some fun stuff. We've covered some serious stuff. So let's talk about like what has been the best money you've spent. Probably the early intervention program, really. Okay. I was, I had a feeling it would go back (laughs) back to that (laughs) because I know how much love you have for your daughters. And tell me about your favorite way of paying. Are you more of a cash check or credit or even debit? I I am not a cash person, mainly because I'm not fantastic at keeping track of cash. Prior to all of these tracking apps and things like that, I was not that fantastic at it. I'm I'm kind of a naturally disorganized person. So the best way for me to do it is something that gets tracked automatically as I use it. So I do use, we have a great Saf- Chase Sapphire travel rewards card that I mm-hmm. run most things through. My husband's British, so we do use the points to go visit his family in England. Nice. And um, I use Mint.com to give me my overview of all of our stuff. We, we have a few businesses between our ranch and our record label and then my online business, Helping Women With Money. So we do separate accounting for those, but I put everything into Mint so I can get the overview on my phone. I can see what transactions have come in and gone out. So I really like electronic tracking. I do very little with cash. 
Makes sense. And give us a little quick rundown on a monthly basis how, because I know you're a systems type person just like me. So tell me a little bit about how you manage those personal finances just amongst living life. Uh, How do you, what kind of system do you have in place? Okay. So my systems are based on two things. One is Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich book where he talks about automating your regular bills as well as negotiating. And then I took Amanda Steinberg's Money Clarity course where she had to actually make a separate bill pay account. Mm -hmm. So I have a separate bill pay account where I automate as many payments as possible. Um, And I also did Ramit's batching and scheduling things so that you batch your bills together twice a month. And I like that because having the separate account, my husband and I each have our own spend accounts, our own personal cash accounts, and money goes into those from our salaries and it goes out of those into the bill pay account. The bills all get paid out of the bill pay account and what's left in our spend accounts is what we have to spend for the month. So that's really all that we manage is what's in our spend account and it never endangers any bills, mortgage or anything like that. Those are already paid out of the bill pay account. So while there's still, you know, we still have to buy food and we still have to do certain things out of our own spend accounts, it's not the same as worrying about, oh, I have to keep $200 in there for the bill that goes out on the 24th, you know. It it just took a load off my mind. And I first started toying with that system in 2011, which is when I was really dealing with all of the special needs finance stuff. And that's when I read Ramit's book. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this will make it so much easier. (laughs) Yeah. And stress and also just putting everything on auto pay, um, you know, even credit cards and everything I get the notification, your auto pay is going to happen in three days. I can check to make sure there's plenty of money, you know, especially with having special needs finance stuff going on. There are some months where we have much higher expenses than other months. Mm-hmm. So having those couple of days to check to decide, do I want to, you know, I'd set it for pay in full. Some There have been some times when I've not been able to pay in full, so I've had to adjust it, but that gives me the time to adjust it and make any changes that I need. So for the most part, I try not to carry credit card debt. There have been times in my life when I have. I hear you. Well, that's great. And I love the separate bill paying account. We, we do the same thing and it just makes, I even go further and just we, um, separate depending on like our, our groceries and I have a separate account for that. So that way it helps with the communicate for me, communicating with my husband, Hey, this is, <laughs> this is what we have for our groceries. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's just one debit or one debit. We use as a credit, but one credit card, or uh, that we use for that account. And the bill paying is just for that. It's just the money gets deposited in and everything gets paid out of that. So it works beautifully. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned you love apps. So what is your favorite money related app that you like to use? Right now, it's actually one that you told me about, which is okay. Ready for Zero. Awesome. I love Ready for Zero. So glad that you like that. Love it. it's, it's a great app. Uh, I talk about it. And I also um, share PowerPay.org just because it allows me to teach. <laughs> how to put your uh, debt in there, whereas Ready for Zero, since it connects, since you have to connect the different accounts, I have a hard time Mm -hmm. since we don't have uh, any current debt. uh, I can't get in there. (laughs) Oh, wow. Congratulations. See, I put our mortgage and I have one car payment left um, that I haven't paid off because it's (laughs) 0.9%. Got it. So I leave that in there and yeah, I just put everything. So it does look like I have, you know, because our mortgage is in there, it's a relatively big amount. But it's also so cool just to see that daily um, yes. 
daily interest yeah. and then to look at as I change the amount that I'm willing to pay in, oh, I was I was actually pulling it up on my phone, but I forgot I put it in airplane mode so it wouldn't ping while we were talking. Um, I'll have to look at it afterwards. But um, yeah, I I think it's such a neat way to graphically see what's going on with your debt. So I've been recommending it to lots of people. Yeah, I love it. And it's kind of replaced. I have a module within my membership group that's on how to work with your debt. And I was like, actually, if you use this, it's much simpler than the spreadsheet that I was doing, you know, because you're looking at, I really like the avalanche method where you pay off the one with mm-hmm. the highest interest first, because that is what brings down that daily interest amount. Right. And looking at that, one of the things I love most about the daily interest amount was David Box latte factor, yes. Yes. you know, how he wants you to give up your lattes. And I don't know, I do feel like having some nice little pleasures in life on a regular basis go a long way to keep you happy. Whereas looking at, oh, if you have $12 a day in interest and you can pay that off, that's your, you know, instead of giving up your latte, give up the interest on your debt by paying the debt off faster. Absolutely. Then you'll get to, you know, that'll fund your retirement account or whatever it is that you want to put that towards. Of course, that's easier said than done. It does take time to get there. But um, but still, it was exciting when I saw that daily interest. I haven't seen that anywhere else. No, it's, it's a good, I mean, it's, I love it. You can just play around with like what ifs, right? And that's mm-hmm. what I really like because that's what motivates people is like, well, what if, you know, I, we were talking about lattes and what if I'd minimize it to one cup of coffee a week or whatever? And this is how much money extra I'll have. What, how will this impact? And that's, mm-hmm. I see a lot of my clients get excited when we just play around with the numbers, just with what if scenarios uh, mm-hmm. and then work backwards from there. So Awesome. How about your favorite money guru celebrity? I have to go with Amanda Steinberg. I love her. She's awesome. I can't. And one of the things I love, yeah, from Daily Worth is she's been so inspirational to me because she she isn't a CPA or a CFP. You know, she was a CEO of her technology company first and, and realized that the struggle she was having with money applied to a lot of people and wanted to share. And I mean, to be honest, if I hadn't encountered her, I don't know that I ever would have thought of going into finance in any way. And my journey was very confused too. It started out with helping other autism moms get services for their kids. I was an autism mom mentor, but with so many of the moms, just looking at their finances was really difficult for them and trying to figure out what they needed to pull together for needs-based funding for things. I ended up doing a lot of financial counseling and I really don't have much training in this. I've been an entrepreneur since I got out of college. I started my first record (laughs) label straight out of college. So I've always had to do some money stuff, but I never thought of myself as being particularly good at it. And even now I feel like I'm learning all the time, but seeing Amanda do this without all of those certifications, I was like, you know what? She's right. The rest of us do have a voice in this. What we have to say is important. Our experience can help other people. Why not? You know, I I don't actually want to go become an accountant. I have a good accountant and (laughs) You know, I, I would rather, I mean, I really love interacting with women and helping them in in what way I can. I mean, most women, especially I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, there's a point where you, you do need to get an accountant and you need to, you know, make sure that you're doing all your taxes right for your county and your state and everything like that. So I would never say that anything I can help someone with replaces a professional. It doesn't at all. But I feel like there's so many people who have resistance and barriers to getting to the point where they feel ready to go to a professional. And I think people like you and me can help with that. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's why I'm I'm doing this podcast. So that way it's, 
an easier conversation where it's not just about number crunching and hey, you need to go save or hey, you need to get out of debt, which that all that stuff is important, but it's about mm-hmm. also the quality of life. It's it's personal finance is just beyond the saving, beyond the retirement, beyond the debt. It's about people like you that are dealing with different situations, personal situations, and how to manage the money and how to, in life in general, how to do all that together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's different, so different for every person, which is why I definitely wanted to have you on here uh, to speak to, to other families that are in your situation. So this has been great. So, Well, I, I think one last thing I just want to add in there is that I think particularly for women, there are a lot of emotional issues yes. attached to our money. I mean, like that story I was telling you with my ex-stepfather kind of manipulating me to approach my dad to for money. Um, yeah, I I thought of that the other day and was like, wow, I think that had a big effect on me. I think it really affected what I thought about money for a long time. And it made me feel kind of guilty and icky and weird. And, you know, I hadn't thought of that story in many, many years, but it came up and I, I I think a lot of us have stuff like that. And then with my kids, realizing that what money means now for me is security for my kids and services for my daughter into the future and being able to find more options for her. And, you know, I I do want her to continue her education after high school. That's one issue that comes up with a lot of special needs kids if they can't go to traditional colleges. You know, if their, their needs and their academic level doesn't get up to that point, there's there are other things that can be done, but it's kind of it's up to the parents to find and fund those things and figure it out and figure out job skills and what's going to happen next. And I want my daughter to have as many options as possible. I want her to have a really rich and fulfilling life at whatever level she's able to participate with other people. I want it to be a really good experience for her. So, you know, seeing money as that instead of as something that's divisive and difficult in families, you know, that's, that's a, a change and, it's just the way I feel about it and the way I look at it, but it's it really changed how I dealt with money. Absolutely, no, I completely, I completely agree. This has been such a fabulous conversation, Jen. And as you know, this podcast is all about making money simple and taking control of it. So, how would you finish this sentence? Her money matters because because money is power. Love in our it. world it's it's power and it's value you know it's how we put value to things so women not taking control of that is disempowering ourselves i love that answer well thanks again jen for being on the show uh, with me today thank you jen So that was the fabulous Jen Terrell. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from her as much as I enjoyed uh, chatting with her. I definitely learned a lot uh, from her and definitely had some takeaways that one of them, which I want to share with you. But before I do, like usual, I want to do a quick shout out, quick recognition from someone in our community. And this week, I wanted to recognize Shannon. And even though there's multiple Shannons uh, in the group, group, I she'll know who she is after I mention what I'm going to mention. So she's a member of our free Her Money Matters community, and she's been super active and engaged and very transparent of her personal financial situation. And being transparent of the personal 
financial situation, I'm sure was tough, but freeing at the same time. And Shannon, I can already tell your determination and that you are taking action uh, from the books you've read the, uh, in the past, from Dave Ramsey, from both Daves, as you've mentioned, and Dave Bach, uh, to what you're doing now. So keep it up, Shannon. And by the way, thank you for binge listening to this podcast. So let's get into uh, today's takeaway from the chat with Jen Terrell. For me, uh, of course, the bigger takeaways are all about special needs finance, but uh, I wanted to share another takeaway as well as the more personal one is about her personal money story. And notice that she didn't realize until recently that that memory may have had an impact on how she perceived money, how she's been perceiving money. So I wanted to bring that up because I think that is just so important to reflect on those memories intentionally, not when they just happen to come up because it can help you understand more about yourself and your relationship with money. So take some time. I challenge you to just reflect, intentionally reflect uh, on the memories and not just think, oh, I had this memory about money. This happened in my childhood, but take it a step further and reflect as to, has that affected you? Do you think uh, there's some things today of how you treat and manage money that go back to that memory. Maybe there aren't, but take a moment to reflect. So I challenge you to do that. And if you do do that and are in the Facebook group, let me know that you did that. I'd love to hear from you. So that is a wrap. And don't forget to join us uh, for the fun because it continues over in the Facebook group and the free community at jenhemphill.com forward slash community. Next week on the podcast, we will be having an interesting conversation on divorce and what impact it had on this uh, and our guest uh, becoming fully in charge of our finances. So don't miss episode 62 next week. And I want to thank Jen Terrell for joining us, uh, for sharing all her knowledge, all her tidbits, her money story. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes on where to find Jen uh, and more at jenhempill.com forward slash 61. So thanks again for joining me and we'll talk again next Thursday. Thursday.